When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to the House of Pot. My name is Kaveh Hoda. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Today, we are going to talk about nutrition. Oh, it's a really important topic. And we're going to talk about why um, it's such an important topic. And to to do this with me, I have a, a special guest co-host. And I'm really excited about this one. The listeners probably know when I'm really excited about, uh, you know, particular guest co-hosts. I'm, I'm excited for them all. I love them all. But this one... I love like a little brother, and I'm very excited that he's on the show for the first time. You haven't met him yet. You've met his brother, but I would like you to meet Alan Liu. Alan, welcome to the show, buddy. Thanks, Kaveh. I am glad to be here. So excited to be uh, able to listen in on this conversation, ask some interesting questions, and just learn about uh, diet health and uh, how I how I can improve what I eat and uh, my lifestyle just to improve my uh, long term health. Holy shit! You're off to a great start on the guest co hosting. That's fantastic. You have like a intro spiel. It's fantastic. Can you tell people how we know each other? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I think I first met you through my brother, who is uh, Dr. Wei Lu. Uh, he was originally part of your band back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know ah. I met you while I was in college, but at some point we got to spend more time together uh, doing our uh, band practices in San Francisco. And uh, you asked me to play bass for this band. And I was like, I don't know how to play bass, but I'll figure it out. Or I like kind of know how to play. Uh, so I kind of winged it and um we had a lot of fun just touring the bar scenes and just uh playing playing some great music or mediocre music <laughs> hey, no it was great man it still is and technically your brother is still part of my band um yeah yeah so way Lu has been on the show a number of times last time he was on the show did you, did you hear what happened last time he was on the show no what happened tell me um i i in a moment of 
you know, feeling very vulnerable, um, <laughs> admitted that he was my best friend. And he, uh, in <laughs> he in return, uh, let me know that I was maybe one of his top 10. I think I remember, <laughs> I, I think I heard that, that episode and he was like, yeah, you're, you're a pretty good friend. I, you're, you're up there. And you're like, yeah, oh, that's oh, great. okay. Great. <laughs> that was great and, and you're exactly right and then um then you joined our band like i made your brother join my band and then i made you join uh as well yeah and that was i think you all, you, your band is great and uh, if anyone gets the opportunity to go listen to you live it's such a fun time yeah well i hope that happens again soon and and you know um i don't have my own little brother so i have to steal my friends little brothers <laughs> And and claim them as my own, and and that's how I think of you. Let me let me ask you this. This is something I think I'm going to start asking all my guest co-hosts because, you know, I think people who listen to the show long enough have some sense of who I am. Either they even know what I look like at this point, or I, w- I wonder actually if people know what I look like. I don't know. A lot a lot of them probably don't, but I know I know a lot of people have a sense of who I am. But let me ask you this for our listeners and for me because I'm curious. <laughs> If we were making a movie of your life, the Alan Liu movie, who would star as you, Alan Liu? Who would star as me? Um, so I would say there was a period of my life where I grew out my hair for about three years. And then um, it was a really strange period of my life because when I started growing out my hair, it was because I was traveling to work a lot. I was uh, in Asia. I didn't have time to get a haircut and I got kind of to shoulder length and I decided, okay, I'm going to go ahead and grow it out. So at some point I can donate it. Um, and what ended up happening was I grew it out and people, random people on the street started stopping me and asking to take pictures of me. And I was like, this is the weirdest thing ever. And they kept saying, oh, yeah, you look like this guy. I don't know if you know this, but you look like Steve Aoki. Or they would just call me straight up Steve Aoki and be like, hey, Steve, can you uh, get, get a picture? Can I get a picture with you? And it happened on a on a weekly basis or pretty much any almost any time that I went out in public, I would get stopped. Uh, and then at some point, I had to go look up a picture of Steve Aoki and literally, uh, it's like a mirror image. It like, was the exact same. And trust me, I never wanted to say this because I never want to be the white guy that says to an Asian guy, you look like this other Asian guy. But you looked the exact same as Steve Aoki. I don't know if our other guest, who we're going to introduce in a moment, knows who that is. But it was uncanny. And that's when I asked you to be in the band. I'm like, I want this guy in the band. <laughs> that's the only reason. It's for the looks. And then and he learned something up. And then he cut his hair for like the first gig. I'm and like, then, what are you doing? The hair was awesome. You look like a rock star. Anyway. Yeah. And the thing is, it's crazy is because like, I don't generally, I get that a lot that, oh yeah, you look like this other person. But when I looked up the pictures of Steve Aoki, I was like, oh, this is like literally my no. face on the internet. Oh, absolutely. Like, like DJing these parties everywhere and it's just be the 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 person that would play my role. <laughs> okay, bo- bonus points. Think think about th- this is something you can come to me later with this, but if we're going to do like a montage of your life during this movie of your life, are there any particular songs you want in that scene? Ooh. Uh Sioki has this pretty good song called The Pursuit of Happiness. Yeah. I think I right. with Kid Cudi, so I would do that. Boy, it's a little too on the nose, but okay, I'll accept it. It's a good call. 
<laughs> Let's get our guest in on this because, you know, we're going to talk about nutrition and you have questions. I have questions. I know a little bit about nutrition, but not nearly as much as our guest. I'm very, very excited to bring on Neha. Neha Shaw. She is an RD, MPH, CNSC, CHES, <laughs> RAD, PIMP. Some of those are real. Some of those are not. Neha she is a nutritionist who is a registered dietitian since 2004. She holds a master's in public health from Loma Linda's bachelor, Loma Linda, not Loma Linda's. It's not like Ruth Chris's <laughs> Loma Linda bachelor degree in nutrition from the California Polytechnic State University as well. She's worked at Stanford Healthcare and UCSF. She's going to help us learn all about nutrition. Neha, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me to join. I'm looking forward to our chat today. Absolutely. <laughs> I want to talk about nutrition. It's a really complicated subject. And it I is. think I think it's really important. And it's one that we as doctors probably don't get the level of uh, training and exposure to that people would expect. In, in medical school, for example, we had like one class on it. It wasn't really emphasized. Um, and even as a GI doctor, as I am, I, I wouldn't say that I received any training in it that would really, that the people who are out there listening assume that we would. A lot of it we learn along the way. A lot of it we learn from people like you. Also, it's a very complicated subject because it seems like the science is always shifting. It seems like one paper comes out saying, oh, you can lose weight by eating all the Frito-Lay chips you want. And then another paper comes out saying, like, if you eat one Frito-Lay chip, you're going to die. And it's like, Everything keeps going back and forth, and oftentimes it's contradictory, and it's like this pendulum in medicine where things can kind of swim, swing back and forth, and, and it feels like that sometimes, and that can be overwhelming for not just the general lay people, but for confusing for doctors even as well. So I'm A really lot to navigate, glad. yeah. <laughs> I'm really glad you're here to help us do that. So let me start with the very basics. Let's just start with how did you get into nutrition? Oh, yes. Um, there's a little bit of a story there, and I promise I'll keep it short and sweet. Um, so as of this upcoming year, it'll be 20 years since I've been, you know, I became a registered dietitian. I've been specializing in gastrointestinal liver nutrition for about 18 years. So it's pretty much my entire career. Um, I had a, a strong interest in this area just because of how nutrients interact with our gastrointestinal tract was just so fascinating and how we can manipulate it to make someone uh, feel better and reduce symptoms. That was even more fascinating. And I think from there, it just kind of took off where I came into their uh, digestive health center um, at Stanford Healthcare. They never had a dietitian before. And I uh, moved in to start and build nutrition services. Alan, let me ask you this. As I hate to use the word layperson because it seems so weirdly derogative. Isn't that? It <laughs> seems like you're just, just a layperson. You lay there on the ground and you don't know anything. Um, <laughs> but as someone not in the world of medicine, uh, do, w how, how much of your your mind is preoccupied with nutrition. How often do you oh. think about it? Is it like something yeah. that you actually care about? Is it something that you think about when you're like making food choices? Yeah, when I was in my like 20s and 30s, I, I would just eat anything, whether it was like carne asada fries, steaks, um, and, and fast food. And I didn't really think about my diet all that much. 
But as I'm getting older into, well, my 40s now, uh, it's coming up pretty soon, uh, I start to think about my long-term health and um, how my diet impacts that. So now when I eat a nice ribeye steak, I, I feel a little bit of guilt and I start thinking, oh, is this going to cause like inflammation in my body? Is, it, is there going to be repercussions? Mm -hmm. So I would say as of lately... Um, I start thinking a lot more about, okay, should I be eating this, this fast food or this bag of chips? So um, that's really why I'm so interested in what Neha is an expert in. So Neha, I have to tell you, it's so wild to me because it's like, you know, when you meet somebody when they're like a certain age, they sort of stay that age forever. Like when I first met Alan, he was like 19, I feel like. And in my mind, he's still <laughs> like 19. And for him to tell me he's almost 40, blows my fucking mind like it's crazy I'm also look at him he, he does look like he's 19 still to be oh, fair thank you thank but you. like it's... what's your secret <laughs> uh, i shaved it. today yeah I, I shaved and i got a haircut I think that's <laughs> try try being more asian neha that's the answer um so so anyway so so neha that that's interesting though right because i mean that is like as people get older and now more than ever, I think people think about like the dietary choices they make. And there's all these keywords floating around out there, like inflammation, inflammatory diets, you know, people are, are, I think, caring about it and focusing on it more than I remember ever in the past. But at the same time, I don't feel like, I don't feel like there is a unified sense from the world of medicine what is healthy and what is not. Um, what if you had to sum up your take on nutrition? And I know this, we're going to spend a lot more time talking about this, but if you had to sum it up into one sentence for people out there, what would be your take on what is good nutrition, what is not? That's a great question. Um, so good nutrition involves eating more of the foods that we would recommend. You mentioned you love your ribeye steak or that bag of chips. And a dietitian may say, don't give up your favorite foods, but what can we add to that steak that is good for your health to help balance out that meal? So good nutrition practices, there's two aspects there. So one is, is that is what we eat, right? Fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, sweets, um, different foods from different cuisines um, and so forth. What type of beverages we drink, that is what we eat. And then part of good nutrition is how we eat. It's the habits that we have that we need to pull in to make um, some aspects of your diet more consistent. So we are eating the foods that are good for us. Now, if one is eating that ribeye steak and that bag of chips, I don't need to put your diet on the spotlight here oh, or yeah. what you just mentioned. <laughs> Free counseling session here. Um, so, so with that said, um, as a dietitian, it's not my role to say, what are you doing? Why are you eating that steak? I'll be like, okay, how often you eat that steak? How much are you eating that steak? What can we pair up with that steak that is, um, I guess, anti-inflammatory as we call it. And when we use the word anti-inflammatory, I'll use that as an example. 
it's a really a, a, a different um, varieties of foods that can help fight inflammation. It has filled with antioxidants like vitamin A or vitamin C. It has phytonutrients, which are natural substances as a part of those foods. So as a dietitian, I'm always looking for what can I add more of to these meals out of those categories? How can we use more spices and herbs? How can we... Um, get um, more helpful fats into the diet. It's always a focus on more versus less. Even with the question that you just asked, like, I wonder if I should be eating this or not. And what I usually will encourage my patients to reframe that is what should I be eating more of? Not necessarily what, what I should be eating less of. And it's going to be more of a positive action. And I find that to be really sustainable and um, uh, in that aspect. Yeah, that's, so that's a really good, good nutrition. way. That's a really good way of framing it. It's Okay, not necessarily me feeling guilty about the things that I exactly. do. Exactly. I'm going to be really upset if you're going to tell me I couldn't eat steak for the rest of my life <laughs> because that's like a such a big, big part of my diet that I enjoy uh, eating every once in a while. Um, but reframing it to thinking about, okay, what can I eat more of that will have a positive impact on my body? It, exactly. So using that same example as a ribeye steak, can we add a side of vegetables that you normally enjoy as a part of a good nutrition framework? And as you mentioned, what is healthy, what is not, is quite controversial. Um, there's a lot of dialogue um, everywhere on what is considered to be healthy or not. And how I help my patients define that, where is the evidence? What has been shown to help with good health? How do we bring that more into the diet? And again, I'll reinforce it. Anything that may not be as helpful, meaning that it has potential, not to lead to other health issues. Maybe it's not every day. Maybe it's in smaller amounts. Maybe you share with others. Um, but there's always that gray area that we have to define as a way to bring in a meal that is, you know, helpful for us. And a helpful meal overall has multiple food groups. And, and then with that said, those multiple food groups will consist of foods that are good for us. And again, it, other foods that may not be as helpful, again, here and there, uh, sprinkled into your diet. But I will never tell anyone not to give anything up unless it's really unsafe, um, like <laughs> a, a narrowing of the gut or something and something gets stuck in there, like an obstruction. Mm -hmm. But other than that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't do that because they're going to call me for that. Um, yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so Neha, it's come up a couple times. Um, and, and I'll tell you, it, it's like something that comes up with doctors too, with a lot of confusion. I was speaking to an ICU doctor, an intensivist who is just incredibly smart and knowledgeable and is the ICU person that you would want around in case of, you know, some catastrophic uh, intensive care unit case. But we were talking about diets and they they said you know sometimes when i'm not feeling well or i feel like i'm under the weather i just try to eat clean and i said what, what do you mean by that well i just try to eat like an anti-inflammatory diet and i said what, what, what does that mean and they're like i don't really know and i'm like that's a great question i mean we hear Can that answer term. that <laughs> please do talk about this in inflammatory diet yeah. what's an, if that's real if that's something we need to really worry about and what foods are quote unquote inflammatory so let me circle back and let's talk about the word clean. Um, I've heard that plenty of times for my own patients. And there's really no clear cut definition out there. So the first question I usually like to ask my patients, what do you mean by clean? Can you tell me a little bit more what you're looking for? And half the time they say 
less processed foods, more whole foods, uh, certainly foods that don't have as many additives or preservatives. I'm not defining that, but that's their definition, what clean is. Um, so with that said, I think there'll be varying definitions of clean according to different individuals of what they think is healthy. It's kind of tied in with that as well. Uh, so the word clean, I, I try not to use it because there's really no clear cut definition. And I definitely have worked with um, others that are got so preoccupied with the word clean. It's almost to the point where they were eating very little in the diet because they thought every food was not clean. And there's a, also a gray area of how we define that. So that's one aspect is if that doctor is saying I'm trying to eat clean, what does he mean by that? And that's an advice I will give to any healthcare provider listening on this. If a patient is saying, I'm trying to eat clean, I'm trying to eat healthy, ask them what they mean by this, because you're going to learn a lot about their needs and goals by just asking that question. We all have different definitions. And then certainly um, anti-inflammatory, yes, um, there is a such thing as what we call anti-inflammatory foods. And a basic definition of that food may include certain vitamins that can help uh, fight inflammation, protect body cells from damage, neutralize free radicals that can damage body cells. These are, again, your fruits, your vegetables, your whole grains, your legumes, fiber, dietary fiber, a hot topic in the GI nutrition world, um, is also anti-inflammatory because it... Um, it's nourishment to our our gut microbiome. Human beings do not digest fiber, but our gut microbiome does. So its byproducts nourishes um, our gut in a, into like a more of an anti-inflammatory state. Spices, herbs um, also share similar elements. Um, Tea and coffee, yes, they're anti-inflammatory as well. Because uh, again, they have antioxidants in those um, beverages that can help do that. Uh, Omega-3s, ground flaxseed, chia seed um, as a part of the mix as well. So again, uh, anti-inflammatory foods, they share common characteristics that they have um, these antioxidants um, to help uh, reduce the risk of damage to our body cells or, you know, fiber, just to highlight that again, it can certainly nourish our gut bacteria and its byproducts. Um, their process of uh, digesting fiber is called fermentation. So that process produces byproducts, especially short chain fatty acids that can also help reduce the risk of inflammation. I got a question. Um, yes. So you mentioned that there's a lot of different, like you should eat, be eating fruits, vegetable fibers. Um, what specific fruits and vegetables are better for anti-inflammatory uh, inflammation? Um, I've heard a lot about every time I go to Costco, there's always that free sample of turmeric that I can drink. Um, yeah, yeah I, I've heard uh, that become more popular recently. So I'm just curious. That's a really great question. So in a nutshell, any fruit, any vegetable, um, any legume um, is actually helpful for us to eat. Now, if one has a gastrointestinal disorder, there are uh, different types of fibers in the diet and different types of fibers have a different impact on the gut. So not all fruits are equal not equal to one another, not all vegetables are equal to one another. So it's so how I work with um, 
my patience is that, oh, okay, you're having a lot of gas and bloating. Let's look at the class of fibers, fermentable fibers that maybe we need to eat less of and eat more of the fibers that don't cause as much gas. <laughs> and the definition of fermentable fibers, for again, fermentable meaning it is um, the fibers that are taken up by our gut bacteria. The more fermentable a fiber is, the more it's taken up by our gut bacteria. So any fruit, any vegetable is okay to eat, but if there are gastrointestinal concerns, then we need to modify the type of fiber coming in um, to help address those symptoms and what to eat more of um, to help address that. <laughs> Yeah, oh, super interesting. And then, uh, what's your what's your take on turmeric? And and yeah, great question. Um, so turmeric is a spice, um, anti-inflammatory as well. Um, there's a lot of good data to show out there that it is anti-inflammatory. Curcumin is the you know what we extract from the turmeric. Turmeric itself is the whole thing is is just a spice, but the active component in turmeric is curcumin. And that can certainly be, um, has been shown to reduce inflammation in some studies. Um, I specialize in inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, it involves chronic inflammation within the intestines. Um, so there is some good data there to show that it can help fight inflammation and ulcerative colitis. Too much turmeric, too much curcumin. Um, also, there's some safety concerns there. We want to make sure we protect our liver. So anything of a good thing, <laughs> and, you know, we do it in moderation. So if you want to have a little bit of that sip of that turmeric drink, it's perfectly fine to do that as a part of a helpful diet. But if it comes to like turmeric supplements, like actual capsules or pills or curcumin supplements, I think it's looking at the dosage. You need to treat it like a medicine. What is the dosage? What is the amount? What are the risks and benefits? Uh, what is the safety profile? And that's where I will encourage others to treat it like a medicine and learn more about that before they start yeah. taking any type of turmeric supplements yeah, or moderate. curcumin supplements. You got it. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I should add here, the turmeric supplement argument is brought as a lot of this is with a lot of pseudoscience stuff, nonsense. This whole arena, Correct. unfortunately, is fertile ground for grifters. And I love turmeric. <clears throat> I'm Middle Eastern. We use it a lot in our cooking. I'm it South Asian. Delicious. Yes. There was, you know, if there was some evidence that it could be useful in terms of fatty liver and, and gut health. The truth of it is, though, there was a journal of molecular chemistry paper that came out in 2017, really looked at it, and it showed that, you know, there is really no randomized control trial right. that ever shows that it's of any real use, probably because yes. it gets inactivated in the gut before it can be really of any use to you. Does that mean not to take turmeric? No, I mean, use it yeah. in your cooking. You know, it's delicious. It adds a color and a flavor. It's it's good. Make it in your um, juja kebab, if you like. Put it into your, your Indian dishes, too. But at the same time, like, it's not going to be the thing that that does it for people. And, and it's so interesting because this whole... This all this this conversation is so interesting because I agree with so much of what you're saying, Neha, but it also makes me nervous because I know the the world of the this there's this whole industry, billion dollar industry, making money off of people for all yes. these same things. They use terms like 
you know, anti-inflammatory diet, clean as as if there's like a moral value to certain foods and they and they get you to be worried about it and they get you to say, this is the kind of thing you have to be afraid of, this food, and this is what you need to buy from me to take care of it. It's such like this, um, it's a real, It's we have to be very careful navigating through these wires. I'm sure you have to do this constantly. Every day. Uh, every day. <laughs> And you know, I think that's that's one of the part of the question, like part of the reason that I ask it is as a regular everyday consumer, it's hard for me to tell what is really beneficial versus what's not, what's just marketing and what the data actually says. I, I It's hard for me to filter through all of that. So, yeah. so I will keep it simple. I always will encourage whole foods as much as possible, less from supplements. Um, I would have to say a lot of my patients are taking supplements because they believe they're deficient in something where in turn, likely not, you know, are if we're able to get a lot of these whole foods into the diet, a wide variety of nutrients. Um, and that's one way to not become deficient. Um, or, you know, we can certainly look into checking what that would look like if there's a test for that. And then we can talk a little bit more about that. Um, but the second thing is, is that, um, you know, foods, it would be a challenge to overdose on foods because a food has so many different nutrients in one food. And the benefit of eating a whole food is that you get, again, so many different nutrients in one food that it's like a not a one-stop shop for a wide variety of vitamins and minerals and proteins and all that, where a supplement could be quite concentrated. And it's not as regulate the way medications are in the yeah. United States. I yeah. think one, we have to remember that. So meaning that if they're, if one is taking a supplement and then something happened because of that supplement, yeah. that's when, you know, our FDA may jump in and start investigating, but supplement uh, manufacturers are not really required to go through all the different vigorous <laughs> applications and mm -hmm. testing and mm -hmm. studies in order for a supplement to go on the market. And that it makes me nervous. Like, yeah. oh God, what are you taking? You know, oh, so that's absolutely. why when when they look yeah. when they look at these dietary supplements and they really carefully look at them, you know, or they look at like these these things that are being sold without regulation to clean yes. or detox your liver. A lot of times there's ingredients in them that will actually harm your liver. And nobody yes. cares because nobody's looking at those things. And you know, as a, as a liver, someone who cares about the liver as a liver doctor as well, it's I do agree with the the less processed foods, but not because there's some sort of like inherent evil to them, but because a lot of times with processed foods they'll dial up the sugar in that, or they'll they'll take down the fat or whatever, but they can easily dial up the sugar in it, and that's just stored in your liver as fat and that's what absolutely so with any type of supplement like i meant you know looking at the data what does the current data say and 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 you know with my patients i'm like did you tell your doctor you're taking this no why i'm like <laughs> okay you need to tell your doctor that you're taking this because we need to factor this in what if right. there's a, a drug supplement interaction of some sort that, you know, we learn only after it happens. So we need to treat these supplements as medications as well. And then you brought up the fact on um, processed foods, there's different levels of processed foods, just to add another layer of complexity. And I think um, when I hear the word processed foods, it's not just saying, well, don't eat that at all. Everyone comes in with their diet with different levels of background and finances and, you know, 
so it's, it's, it's really looking at what that food is, what it's composed of that food, how is that food available to the individual and more. So it's the ultra processed foods that we have um, some concerns about because of the added fats and sugars and oils and possible additives and preservatives. But even a bag of uh, frozen berries is considered to be a process on some level, but it's minimally processed where something like a canned soup, it could be more processed, but then you have to look at the ingredient and take a look at, is it made with vegetables? Is it made with something else? So Mm -hmm. ingredient Mm -hmm. reading is going to be important as a part of a good nutrition habit. (laughs) As if it wasn't all complicated enough. Um, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yeah, I had a, a really foundational question. I realized I should have asked at the beginning of the show, but um, I don't understand uh, as, as a regular person, as a non not not a person that's working in the medical field or in nutrition. Um, I I don't have a good understanding of what the definition of a healthy liver is versus an unhealthy liver. I don't really know what the liver does, <laughs> to be honest. Um, all I know is that if I drink too much, my liver is going to be upset at me and I'm going to have problems down the line. Oh, buddy, we could talk about this for a long time. And I will actually defer you to a couple of our recent episodes about fatty liver and liver mm-hmm. health. Um, the long, the short of it, your liver does a ton of stuff for you. It does a quote unquote detoxification, which it takes things out of your bloodstream and changes them and modifies them and helps with the process of metabolism breakdown. Yep. It helps you create things as well. There is like glucose, gluconeogenesis, the making of glucose in your body, also other proteins that your your body can use like for blood clotting for example. It it's an amazing underappreciated organ and there are the, the what's unhealthy for the liver. What's an unhealthy liver is a big topic because your liver can take quite a bit of damage, but still recover function. and regenerate yeah. and still yep. function. Um, but it's one of those problems where sometimes where it's been pushed too far, it's been too damaged and you start to notice it. It's when it's at a point where I wouldn't say too late because the liver can usually still recover in many cases if you do all the right things. But sometimes it can be pushed too far and you never want to risk that. It can be pushed to a point of no return. It can get inflamed to the point where it it never recovers. Have you ever heard the the myth of the Titan Prometheus? I have not. Your Greek studies, guys. What's going on? What's going on? (laughs) Sorry, sorry. All right. So Prometheus was one of the Greek Titans. And the long and the short of it was he was a pretty cool Titan. His Titans go. they They were questionable, the Titans. But what he did was he stole fire from Mount Olympus and he gave it to the humans. And as part of his torture for this, Zeus chained him to a rock um, near where does modern day Iran, depending on where you, I mean, whatever, it's all garbage. Um, but like uh, they chained him to a rock and a giant vulture would come out and peck out his liver every day, but it would regrow. So it would be there to be pecked out the next day. This happened until Hercules saved him. Anyways, there's some truth to that. Your liver can take a ton of damage and it can recover. And it can recover if you do the right things. If you take away those insults that are uh, damaging it, it can get better. Uh, so the liver can operate for quite a long time until it's pushed to a point where it's completely scarred and then it no longer functions. Yes. So mm-hmm. that's cirrhosis when it's really scarred. Now, even when people have cirrhosis, it doesn't necessarily mean that the liver stops working. Sometimes it can still do the things it needs to do. 
But that's the point when you're really concerned, because if it stops working, we don't have a great dialysis system for the liver. Like if your kidneys stop working, you have to be put on a hemodialysis so your kidneys can, the work of the kidneys can be done by a machine. Now, the liver is so much cooler than the kidneys, suck it, nephrologist, that we don't have a machine that can do that because the liver does so much more. So the only thing you can do at that point when your liver stops working, when it's been pushed too far, when there is a cirrhosis and it stops to function after that, you need a liver transplant. That's the only thing you can do is get a new liver. So it's a long, sorry, answer to your question. And it's a whole different thing we can go into for like a whole other podcast completely dedicated to it. But yeah, I hope that answers. Yeah, that helps a lot. Getting back to the original point about the supplements at the end of the day, as a friend of the show, Jen Gunter has said, really what they do is give you expensive urine. For most people, that's what they do. They get peed out. They're not doing much for you. Some people need supplements for some sort of another. If there's some GI underlying condition, we can talk Correct. about that. But there are, for most people, they don't need them. Now, speaking of things uh, that will waste your money, stay tuned for some advertisements, um, and we'll be right back. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Oh, and we're back. Wow, that was fantastic. Those were really satisfying commercials. I enjoyed every single one of them or one, depending on how many were placed into this break. Neha, let's let's talk a little bit about some of the specific medical diets that we put people on. Now, uh, the probably the most common, I don't know, maybe this is not the most common. I don't know if most people know about this or not. Alan, you can tell me. But I feel like the one that people are most concerned with is glutens and celiac, the celiac diet. Can you tell us what the celiac diet is and... Let's talk a little bit about why it might be tricky to follow. Absolutely. So um, the aspect with celiac disease, let's just start there, is that it is, we know it is an autoimmune disease where there's an immune reaction to um, gluten when gluten comes in through from the diet. Um, gluten is found in wheat, barley, rye, and malt. So those with uh, celiac disease, the gluten-free diet is the only treatment for celiac disease. It's a lifetime treatment. So the individuals that would need to follow a gluten-free diet would need to eliminate um, not just the obvious sources of wheat, barley, rye, and malt, like wheat bread or, you know, a pasta 
made from wheat flour, but it would also need to look at eliminating um, all what we call hidden sources of gluten, where gluten could be hiding in the food, but it does not look like there's any gluten in that food, like a soup that has um, flour to thicken that soup, or perhaps a marinade has soy sauce because the soy sauce is made from wheat. Um, and then certainly uh, looking at the cross-contamination aspect where um, gluten can accidentally come into the food and then we have to apply the measures to reduce that cross-contamination of a gluten-containing food mixing into a gluten-free food. So that, those are those um, measures that are taken for those who have celiac disease, okay? Now, um, and again, this is for lifetime, but gluten also has its um, own, um, I'm not sure what to term it, but there's a lot of interest to follow a gluten-free diet um, for those who do not have celiac disease for a lot of different reasons. Um, maybe gluten causes inflammation in the gut. Um, gluten is not healthy to eat. I think I have certain symptoms. It must be the gluten. I better take it out just to see if that would help. And um, so th with that said, my recommendation there is that if one does not have celiac disease, it has been ruled out and one still feels that I need to not eat gluten, then, you know, as a healthcare provider, as a dietitian, then it's really going into education in terms of what is gluten and how, what we know of gluten and how it impacts the body. Um, from my perspective, I have not seen significant studies that contributes to significant inflammation in the body. Um, it's one of those things where um, if one does not feel well with eating gluten, it can make sense to eat less gluten, not completely avoid. Uh, my concern when one starts to avoid certain foods, when you take one food out from the diet, you take out five other foods mm -hmm. that you may eat that one food with and behold, <laughs> we have a diet that does not have much in there. So if one is having certain symptoms with gluten um, and celiac disease has been ruled out, the symptoms have been looked at, and then the next step would be is to eat less gluten and have a mix of gluten-free and gluten-containing with that. But gluten, I see no reason not to have it in the diet. Uh, it's, it's okay to eat it, um, but I, I do think that we can work out the gray area, the portions, how much, how often, if one has symptoms with eating gluten, most often from my experience, gas or bloating or some gastrointestinal dis distress that I've um, seen my patients have with gluten. I have yeah. one more comment to make, um, but the other um, aspect is that gluten is a protein um, found in wheat, barley, rye. Um, however, um, some of the studies have shown the carbohydrate found in gluten-containing foods called fructans could be a possible reason why some may um, develop symptoms. And fructans are fermentable fibers, going back to the different classes of fibers. And we don't have enzymes to digest fructans at all. We just don't. Um, and then, um, uh, and certainly um, that could be a possible reason why those may have symptoms, the fructans versus the gluten. And then again, you eat less fructans um, to help with that. <laughs> In your experience, when you see someone who's on a celiac or gluten-free diet and they are having symptoms due to gluten exposure, uh, where is the most common 
place? Where are the slip-ups or where are they not knowing that they're getting the exposure? Is it, like you said, like soy sauce? I feel like that's a big one. That is a big one. Um, from my conversations with my patients, um, common sources are cross-contamination. Um, it's really those foods that may have hidden sources of gluten, but it looks completely gluten-free. Um, that's one um, uh, big aspect of gluten exposure. Um, certainly with eating out in restaurants, um, trying to work with the servers and work with the, the kitchen staff and working with the chefs and making sure they understand that this food should not have any gluten in there. Um, but cross-contamination, again, it could be, um, you know, a kitchen that has shared kitchen space or perhaps that gluten-free pasta was boiled in the same water as the gluten-containing pasta or perhaps that chicken... Chicken has no gluten, uh, but it was dusted with flour before baking the chicken. And that could be a cross, not more like a cross contamination, more like a mm -hmm. hidden source of gluten. So mm -hmm. a way to counteract that is really working with what are the right type of questions to ask your server. Um, a lot of the times, many don't know what gluten means, but if you start to ask, is this made with soy sauce? What type of flour is used to make mm -hmm. this food? Mm -hmm. um, can you tell me a little bit more about the ingredients used to make this particular entree? Like get yeah. to the bottom right. line of the question it, yeah. it is it's a tough it's a it's a it's tough yeah thin line there's a very thin line for people and i understand why it's so hard you're out there you don't want to be that annoying portlandia character that really digs into like the weird minutia of like how the food was made um but you also and because i mean you're worried about the server looking at you like you're a jerk but you know, but at the same time, it is important because that is where a lot of the stuff is coming from. Um, and eating out is such a difficult thing for some of these people because they don't have that control. And 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 it's hard for me too as a medical professional because I want people to be paying attention, but I don't want them to make it. I don't want them obsessing over it either. Um, and it's so hard for them to do that and to be outside at the same time. It's it's a it can it's be a such fine a challenge. balance. Yeah, it's a fine balance between being mindful and walking on eggshells around your diet. And right. and again, it's um, empowering um, my patients to learn what type of questions to ask um, as a start and recognizing situations that cross-contamination could occur, like maybe a social setting where mixed uh, utensils are used for different foods um, and how do we counteract that and also how can they advocate for themselves um, I do find as those who have adopted the gluten-free diet for celiac disease over time they've become comfortable in advocating for themselves but in the beginning they're just like oh gosh I'm asking so many questions yeah. and right. it's okay like it's okay <laughs> yeah and I feel like people servers and restaurants have become a lot more sort of accustomed to this and they sort of understand these things better and they understand what's happening. I mean, you kind of alluded to it. There are people who don't have celiac disease who can be very concerned about this. And I think um, that that becomes more of a challenge. That's a difficult one because some people might have, there's, this is a bit of controversy, Alan. There's people who would be like, listen, you either have celiac disease or you don't. 
And there's some people say, well, there might be some gluten intolerance where like gluten just, you don't like the way they make you feel like maybe they trigger something in you that you don't like. Um, so there's a bit of controversy around this topic itself. And I, I, I think it's becoming, um, it's become a lot more common for people to be aware of, of glutens and their impact. So I, I think it can be such a challenge. I have a lot of appreciation yeah. for my patients with celiac disease that have to navigate the world out there uh, with their with their celiac disease. Um, let's talk about elimination diets in general. Alan, what do you know what an elimination diet is? Not, I, I assume from the name of it is just eliminating certain portions or types of uh, foods or uh, nutritional aspects of your diet that you just have to take out because your body reacts poorly to it. Um, but yeah, feel free to describe it to me uh, again. Absolutely. Um, so an elimination diet, um, there is a focus for a certain nutrient to be removed from the diet. And then there's also, along with that, there's a list of substitutions to add into the diet to help replace that particular nutrient. Um, a lot of elimination diets, um, to be honest, from my perspective, they're short term. Um, they necessarily don't. They're not forever and ever and ever to be, to be followed. And then it's followed by a reintroduction to really learn what is bothersome um, of what was eliminated. So, uh, within the world of GI nutrition, there is various elimination diets. There's lactose free diet. There's dairy free diet. There's low fiber diet. There's low FODMAP diet. There is, you know. Um, there's a lot of different elimination diets there. And it's interesting, the word elimination, I, I don't know why that word bothers me. Again, I like to call it the substitution diet or something like that. No, because... it makes sense. You want to focus on the positive, which is like, what can we yes. put in versus what do we have to take away from your life? And again, exactly. Like, let's, what do we need to eliminate? And then I find a lot of my patients get stuck on the elimination and they don't add back. And then um, we need to be able to work with that. So an elimination diet, again, removes a particular nutrient and then for like a couple of weeks, depending on um, what is decided between um, me and my patient and then, or maybe a certain diet, like the low FODMAP diet is for six, um, it could be, it's up to six weeks, but at least for two weeks, um, as another example. And then we slowly have a reintroduction plan while continuing the elimination phase, but then you add trials of the other foods just to see how one does. Um, so, and I think with elimination diets, it's very easy to go there. I definitely have met and worked with a lot of patients that they're doing multiple elimination diets at the same time. Uh, as you can tell, it leads to significant restrictions within the diet because they're not sure whether this, you know, it's like, okay, I need to do this elimination diet for this issue and I need to do this elimination diet for this issue. And this is where it's really appropriate to refer the patient to a registered dietitian to help kind of sort all that. Uh, maybe it's not even all needed. And my ex uh, experience is never needed to have so many restrictions in the diet. I've been yeah. able to add back. But that's really the gist of an elimination diet removal and then add back and go from there. But what we need to remove really is based on an assessment of the current diet at baseline. What are the symptoms at hand? And then what do we need to do to help with that? But from my experience is what do we need to add more of to help with this issue as well? Like 
patients will come to me saying, I'm having diarrhea, I'm having constipation, I'm having a lot of gas and bloating. What am I supposed to avoid to help these issues? And I'm thinking, well, let's go, as an example, go back to the topic of fiber, different types of fibers you know, exist in the diet and they have different influences on the GI tract. So can we look into adding more soluble fibers into your diet to help you address this diarrhea? Um, more bananas and oatmeals and the function of soluble fiber, again, using that as an example, that fiber dissolves in a fluid and then the and then that fiber holds that fluid like a sponge and it kind of add a little, you know, it can help slow, you know, kind of thicken that up where, oh, you're dealing with a lot of constipation. What am I doing um, wrong that I need to like continue? What am I supposed to avoid? I'm like, oh, let's take a look at your diet. What's missing? What do we need to add more of? Let's add more of that soluble fiber to soften that stool because that's mm -hmm. what soluble fiber will do. But insoluble fibers will also stimulate bowel movement. So we need both in hand. So I work with my patients to add more into the diet, not necessarily take away. And that mm -hmm. alone helps resolve a lot of their symptoms as well. And and if people are having a hard time following all this, one thing to remember that I think we are both are going to agree on here is fiber in general. We want you to have more of. Yes. We want more fiber in your body. I'm a I'm a gastroenterologist, Alan. You know how many colons I've looked into over the past <laughs> ten years. So <laughs> many colons, and I can tell you that Americans need more fiber from their diet. If nothing else comes from this, this whole episode, I want you to have more fiber in your diet. Do it for me. Do it for your favorite <laughs> medical podcast host. Have more fiber in your diet. And your favorite and, dietitian? No. And your favorite dietitian. Because <laughs> at least one of us, if not both of us, are going to look into your colon at some point and we'll know. And then what I can we'll add know. to that is that if you if there are no gastrointestinal symptoms, yeah, then have a mix of different fibers at each meal. So if I'm telling you eat a fruit or a vegetable at each meal, you fill in the blanks of what you enjoy out of that. But if you're dealing with gastrointestinal symptoms or particular gastrointestinal disorders that slow down motility or movement, then maybe we need to look at different textures um, um, or smaller amounts at a time, but we still want to bring in the fibers um, um, to, because again, for gut health, um, variety in the diet, there's a lot of different reasons why, as we mentioned earlier, why we want to include the fiber in the diet. I talk about fiber 30 times a week, just letting you guys know. It's oh, all the time. <laughs> trust me, you, you and me both, sister. All right, let's, let's transition here. Um, I want to talk about food allergies. Now, this is a tough topic okay. because it is people use the term allergy a lot. And in truth, it really just means any sort of adverse reaction that people are having to food. And there's two basic categories of this. There's sort of the immunologically mediated mm -hmm. allergy, mm -hmm. which is what people think of when you have an allergy, your body has this immune Correct. response to it. <clears throat> and then there's the non-immunological response to food that's really probably more common than true food allergies, um, which is just something about it just doesn't sit right with you. And it, and it can be that can be pretty severe, too. Um, but let's let's talk about food allergies in general, um, how you address them, what you see is the most common ones and, and what you talk to patients about. OK, so a couple of aspects there is that let's really first define food allergy versus food intolerance. Uh, we need to separate those two. There's also terms out there 
food sensitivity, <laughs> but they all get interchangeable all on the, you know, same um, uh, plate. I'll use the word plate because I'm a dietitian, but they get all thrown in together, um, but they're all definitely distinctions there. So food allergies is, it, you know, they come up when the immune system reacts to usually, you know, a protein coming in from the diet. Um it really gets into high gear and a lot of the symptoms associated with the food allergy, it could be a rash, it could be hives, it could be itchiness, um, it could be um, concerns, breathing issues. It, there's a range of symptoms um, from that perspective. If one has a formal diagnosis of a food allergy that you actually done the testing, what we call IgE um, testing, uh, and there is a list of allergies, then those foods are completely eliminated from the diet. And then substitutions are brought in for that particular um, food. Okay. There's a, a top eight allergens. Um, it could be other foods like wheat, tree nuts, peanuts, fish, shellfish, um, egg, soy, dairy, um, more so milk. So there could be a variety of different allergies there. Now, food intolerance, it's really not considered a immune reaction compared to food allergies. One can have a food intolerance and have normal IgE levels, <laughs> okay? Food intolerances can lead to uh, gas gastrointestinal GI symptoms such as abdominal pain, reflux, um, AKA, I guess I can call it also heartburn on some level, gas, bloating, changes in bowel movements, or just overall gastrointestinal distress. So in that situation, the foods, or if we're suspecting certain foods, um, it may not need to be completely eliminated. Usually from my experience, it does not, but maybe we need to look at how much is eaten at a time, um, how often is eaten at a time. Do we need to, um, you know, really look at this whole process. And one thing I said at the beginning of the podcast, not all foods are equal to one another. So let's use lactose intolerance as an example. There's no need to completely avoid dairy. There's different types of dairy in the diet, different amounts of lactose in dairy. Um, and if there is a concern for lactose um, then, or having gastrointestinal symptoms from having lactose, then as a dietitian, I'm like, well, how much is coming in? If you're telling me that you're having milk and cereal and cream in your coffee and yogurt with some fruit all for breakfast, and you're wondering why oh God, I'm feeling a little uncomfortable after this breakfast, then maybe the thought is that we reduce the amount of dairy coming into that meal and then spread that out a little bit more. Um, or something like hard cheeses like cheddar or Swiss, it's about like 0.02 to 0.05 grams of lactose, really tiny, tiny amount. And I know this as a, a dietitian, but something like a glass of milk that has 11 grams of lactose might be a little too much to handle. Mm -hmm. So it's very dose dependent. I'm going to use the word dose dependent. How much you can handle at a time is the key to addressing a food intolerance. Um, but I, I encourage um, others, you know, to work that piece out because it can help you bring in more variety in the diet. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, in terms of lactose, it sounds like, okay, uh, you can handle a certain amount and some, some foods have more and some foods have less. I have noticed that if I drink like a glass of milk yep. and I'll have a more severe reaction versus <laughs> my brother will be able to eat, he's lactose intolerant also, and he'll be able to eat a slice of cheese pizza and he'll be fine. 
Um, so yeah, it sounds sounds pretty interesting that there's different levels of lactose in each one of those types of foods. Absolutely. There are charts out there. I have, you know, part of working with my patient is to provide that education. Like I can't, there's a big difference between nutrition education and nutrition counseling. And if I'm hearing concerns of food intolerance, it really starts with education. Like what this could be or where can you find these foods the amounts and 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 how often and then you move into setting goals like okay can we try this what's your thoughts of separating this out for so we can put it into action <laughs> um but that's a great example of an intolerance that i find people just go completely 100 dairy free and there may not, there's really no reason to do that unless one wants to go dairy free, then, then we work on substitutions for that. If there, if that, if there's an interest there, but if, if there's an interest to bring back a little bit of dairy, we can work that out. You know, what's weird about his brother, his brother will only eat cheese in the form of pizza. Like he <laughs> thinks cheese outside of pizza is the most disgusting thing you could do, which is like, I will straight up eat a block of cheese and and be happy he will only eat it on pizza you, you know your brother's like that right alan it's very true he only eats cheese on pizza and that's it yeah it's the only yeah. acceptable form it, it's the weirdest thing and he's perfectly fine with it on pizza perfectly fine with it yeah for for neha and kave i guess both of you i i i love eating steaks i've mentioned that i love red meat i love fast food um if if you were to try and convince someone to eat healthier, what's the the biggest way to or like the best way to do that? Oh, okay. We each give we each give our our one liner on this. Sure. Absolutely. Go okay, you go first. Okay. <laughs> you know, I agree. What I with with something Neha said earlier, which is, I don't necessarily think you need to stop eating meat and steak. Um, there are some really clear benefits to a plant-based diet, but that's not going to be me. So I don't really ever expect my patients to do it unless they're comfortable with it. What I do say is something that my, one of my old mentors, Dr. Dennis Lowe told me, which is sort of, you know, find ways to consolidate those unhealthy meals. So instead of having say four or five like homemade crappy steaks a month, splurge on one really good steak like from a really good steak place or you buy a nice steak dinner and and do it right that one time. Do it less frequently, but make it a thing and, and enjoy that process. Treat yourself with it. Instead of having, if you like fast food and you want to eat hamburgers a couple times a month, instead of doing the hamburger every week or every couple times a week, do one nice steak meal for yourself that week instead and eat relatively healthy in the other days. And, and, and for that, for me, that means... Plant-based does not mean that we have to eat only plants. It just means that it should be the centerpiece of what it is. In, in American food, we have it backwards. We think of like the quintessential meal as a hamburger. Big bun, big meat, a little bit of lettuce, a little tomato, maybe an onion if you're daring, and then another big bun. I would say all those ingredients are okay. I would just put them in different perspectives. I would have more of that lettuce and tomato and the salad and have that stuff make it taste good by ornamenting it with the stuff like the meat and even a little bit of cheese and, or, or a little bit of bread or something as needed. But that should be the ornamentation on top of that salad. Now, I'm totally guilty of this too as well, by the way. But this is the thing I keep telling myself as well and what I keep working towards. That's my... That's my uh, gestalt, my one-liner on on how to approach a diet. Great. Right, uh, I agree. 
<laughs> I agree. Um, so this involves setting many goals for yourself. Um, a common strategy that I work with my patients is that we all know there's multiple food groups in the diet. Let's, let's name them. Protein, animal protein, plant protein. There's the dairy. There's the fruits and veggies. There are the grains. There are the legumes, which is part of the, the protein um, group. There are also your oils and fats and so forth. And what I usually would like to um, encourage patients to do is can we look at um, fruits and vegetables? I think that is a group of food that is not in the diet every day from my, when I, <laughs> all the diet recalls I've taken, you know, and we, and we already talked about the benefits of fruits and vegetables with their fibers and antioxidants and phytonutrients. So if you had to set a little mini goal for yourself, what is one fruit and one vegetable that you can add into your diet every day in the size of a tennis ball and practice? I'm going to use the word practice here because when we're not used to doing something, a habit, we forget to do it. <laughs> so how do we slowly start to do that? And, and then part of, you know, working with a dietitian, you know, this is again, common strategy is really looking at the systems. I can easily tell you, go eat one fruit, one vegetable, and maybe that's it. You got it. You can take yourself from there. And then some people are like, well, how do I do that? Then it's uh, having another conversation on the food systems around fruits and vegetables, where can we look at frozen options, pre-cut options, if you don't have time to cut them up, where are the barriers there? Mm -hmm. So setting little mini goals and stay there for a little bit, you know, and, and work your way up to another portion of fruits and vegetables in the day of what you naturally enjoy, but make it easy for yourself. Uh, that's like a common element. They're like, oh, I don't have time to cut it up. I don't have time to, you know, use this fancy food processor that I have in my kitchen to chop this all up. Then, okay, how can we set up a system that is easy for you to, you know, uh, bring that in. So what's a mini, so I'm going to be the dietitian here and I'm going to counsel you where, what is one goal that you can set for yourself on a fruit and a vegetable? And then in the next little, in the next week or so, go to the grocery store or even sooner than that, buy what you like and you go, you start. Yeah. I think definitely, um, <laughs> I, I should probably go out there and grab some fruits and vegetables just to eat like a handful a day or something that yeah. I can nibble on, nibble on between meals. Uh, and then maybe some sort of vegetable to prepare with my steak. Um, I love both your answers because I was expecting it to be like, oh, the way you convince someone is saying, oh, you if you keep on eating these steaks, you're going to get like heart disease or like liver disease. Um, but it's more about not necessarily eliminating certain foods, but how you eat, how you eat in moderation, how you balance out what your diet is by adding in these fruits, vegetables, whole foods, and fibers. Correct. you most mentioned. That, that's a really interesting point, though, too, because as a medical professional in general, I've had to wrestle with ways to get people to do the right thing. And I would think, I think probably earlier on in my career, I scared people more. And sometimes I feel like you still have to. But I do. don't yes. I don't I don't find that that is always the best course of action until it really has to be. I mean, there are certain people where they'll they'll come to me and I will tell them the truth and I'll say, listen, you have pushed your liver with alcohol yes. to the point of, you know, no return. And and if you keep drinking, you will die. I mean, I and I have to and I say it with more than just that, obviously. 
But that is the gist of it. And you have to be very forthright with them. It doesn't mean you don't stop caring about them or start stop treating them or you don't give them tools that they need from that point on. That That's just part of the conversation. That point has to be very, very brunt. Um, blunt. I'm sorry, brunt. I don't think we brunt. The, it has to be blunt. So It really depends on the situation. Absolutely. Yeah. It, but but I find for most people, I don't think that's the best course of action. That's not the best way to build a, you know, a partnership in their health. Um, I, I think I think you, you there it's a fine line. I think you do have to be honest with people. I never sugarcoat things. I don't want to lie to them, but I also want to empower them. So uh, I feel like it's by I think this this strategy that Neha is saying of sort of focusing on what you can put in rather than what you're taking out. I like that one. I think that's really useful. Um, Good. (laughs) Yeah, totally agree. This has been so great. And I have so many more questions. We haven't even talked about the low FODMAP diet, which is like a big part of, you know, my life. Oh, that's huge. Yes. And that's a whole topic that maybe we need to focus on. If people like this and they want to hear more of it, we can maybe come back and and touch on it. But let's do a couple of listener questions. Um, Let's start with one from a Pool Zone media producer extraordinaire, Sophie Ray Lichterman. She has uh, a couple of really good questions here. Um, one in particular, what are good resources for people who might need one but can't afford a nutritionist? Where would you recommend they go online? What can they do? So for one aspect, it starts with nutrition education. Um, So there are several organizations out there. Um, International Foundation for Gastrointestinal Disorders is a fantastic website filled with a lot of good information on um, how to address um, a GI disorder, not just nutrition, but us, you know, mental health, uh, nutrition, and just overall what that condition is. So information that resonates well um, could be a part of that. Uh, disclaimer, I'm on their advisory board. I do not receive any compensation, though, but I just want to throw that out there <laughs> um, from that brag, perspective. Humble brag. Do you like that? <laughs> I, don't, I don't take any of their money. I just tell them what's what. That's good. <laughs> and there's also... Um, GI On Demand, this is a virtual educational platform between American College of Gastroenterology and Gastro Girl. And another disclaimer, I am a consultant for them. So um, various gastroenterologists, gastropsychologists, dietitians, we all come together to put together um, mini webinars for patients to watch and listen, and many of them are complimentary, or many of them have a really low rate that you can buy a series of. And that is another resource. This is giondemand.com, and they will continue to add to their library um, as uh, a resource for patients to uh, use um, for their diet. And I think at the end of the day, um, if one is wondering, gosh, I don't, I can't afford to see a dietitian. What diet am I supposed to follow? One thing I'm going to stress is that that is, again, another 
we're, we're trained to think what diet I need to follow. And as a dietitian, that's one approach where there's a formal list of foods, do's and don'ts, and we follow this. But there's also what I like to call what is missing from your diet? What food groups are missing from your diet mm -hmm. that are healthy mm -hmm. for you? Can we just start there? Going back to the goal of eating one fruit, one vegetable a day, how do we incorporate a little bit of extra fiber into your diet in small amounts that you're comfortable with? And just focus on that. And that itself, you know, can also help you build your diet for gut health as well. You know, that's a great answer. And, and you know what I'm kind of hearing from a lot of your answers? <laughs> um, it makes me wonder, because you deal with a, a lot of not just gut, nutritional health, medical issues, allergies, um, inflammatory bowel disease and underlying GI liver disorders, but I feel like there's more that you deal with than that. It's how much of your job is is managing or treating patients with eating disorders? That's a great question. Um, there is an overlap of eating disorders and disordered eating with GI disorders, but we also have to be cautious where, you know, having gastrointestinal symptoms creates fear within eating because there is... we. It's, it's very understandably so that an association can develop like, I ate this, I don't feel good, I'm not going to eat that again. And that can occur over and over again. So we have to be also cautious on what we call it as an eating disorder versus a, a natural response to um, a reaction or an increase in symptoms. I'm not going to call it a reaction per se. Um, I So with that said, I think it really depends on the level of psychological environment, involvement, not environment, <laughs> involvement um, that is there and gets in the way of being able to implement nutrition recommendations or medical recommendations, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, to treat a particular gastrointestinal liver diagnosis. And this is where I think a team would be helpful that's trained in the mental health area to help address this eating disorder. Mm -hmm. um, this is also looking at the relationship with diet. This is why it's really important that we focus on what to add more in, not what to take away. We stop making these rules on what to take away because that's already happening. Yeah. You know, we need to right. change that narrative there. So, um, so it sounds like so, it's a multifactorial thing. It's so where you, multifactorial. You yeah. The nutritionist, you recommend some some psychological health expert. And also, of course, the primary care doctor, the referring doctor who's also managing their other underlying health issues at the same time. 100%. So I hear a lot of fear. Um, my patients will tell me, well, I hear what you're saying and it makes sense and I get it. And I, I, and I know I'm, I should be doing that, but I'm scared to do this. So how do, what's our starter, what's our starting point? What is a strategy that you're comfortable with? And I let them be in control. How much do you feel you're comfortable with in trying right now? Mm -hmm. I'm saying every day, but it doesn't have to be every day. What are you comfortable with? Like engage them and bring them in as a part of the shared decision-making when it comes to diet. Um, they're the ones that go home and eat at the end of the day. So yeah. it has to work for them. And, you know, Food choices, it's it goes beyond what we like and dislike. Our culture helps us decide our food choices. How much time we want to spend in the kitchen decides our food choices. How much money we want to spend at the grocery store decides our food choices. Our beliefs, um, our fears, um, what people are telling us, the way we cope, all 
also contributes to making food choices. So like you said, it's very multifactorial and working with a dietitian can help break some of that down. But then at times we do need to bring in a team to help address a lot of the thoughts and feelings that are accompanying this as well. Yeah, I understand. All right. One last question. And this is from Ellie Love at Ellie Love XO. How long is it safe to do a carb restricted diet? And the the follow-up is that most low carb diets for weight loss start with hard restriction, like 25 grams per day. Then after a couple of weeks, up to five grams per day per week. What's healthy long-term daily carb volume? I think this, right. is a, this is a tough question, but I do think it's on a lot of people's minds. So absolutely. Um, so the way I approach that, I, I get that question a lot. Um, first of all, when I hear the word low carb diet or one is following a low carb diet, what are you restricting? There are carbohydrates with fiber. There are carbohydrates with starch without the fiber. <laughs> and there's also carbohydrates with added sugar. So what are you exactly restricting? Um, 25 grams of carbohydrates, 50 grams of carbohydrates, even 75 grams of carbohydrates, they're all quite low. And I do get concerned when it, it's too low. It can, I mean, yeah, it may achieve the weight loss aspect that people are looking for, but is this sustainable? Um, there are ways to help promote weight loss without restricting um, the carbohydrates. I think it's a focus on the type of carbohydrates to bring in. Uh, I'm going to say carbohydrates with fiber. Um, the other aspect is, is that um, when it comes to the carbohydrate amount, there is a recommended daily allowance. It's set for 130 grams of carbohydrates a day. And the RDA is set, um, what is the minimum amount needed for good health? <laughs> um, and that is where, um, so 130 is a number I'll throw out there, but everyone is so different in their tolerance and what they want to eat in their diet. So it's, again, it's building that balanced meal. And the last thing I'll say is that a lot of the, my patients that come to me on low carb diet, they're also coming to me with significant constipation and gas mm -hmm. and bloating because they have removed so much from their diet. Mm -hmm. So if we want to reduce the risk of gastrointestinal symptoms uh, or developing, um, using that as an example, I will encourage the carbohydrates to come in, but we need to look at portions. We need to look at the type um, and we need to look at how we're building those meals. So I will encourage those to work with a registered dietitian um, to help um, put a plan together. Yeah. All right. That, yeah. It, Alan. Yeah. And so it sounds like a uh, hundred grams is the recommended for per day about ish. 130. 130. And just for reference, I've started looking up the numbers for how much is in a bowl of rice. It sounds like it's around 50 grams for a bowl of rice in, in, car, in terms of carbs and then 15 grams for a slice of bread. So just for a reference and understanding. Mm -hmm. how and those numbers are out there. So when you look at a label, a food label, it'll say total carbohydrates and there's a number. They'll break it down with added sugars. That's another aspect of carbohydrate. They'll break it down with dietary fiber, right? Mm -hmm. Those fiber is carbohydrates at the end of the day, but because we don't digest fiber, it's not necessarily something that's absorbed like a starch or an added sugar. Mm -hmm. So um, with carbohydrates, I tend to focus on carbohydrates with fiber, you know, a, a medium-sized apple is about 15 to 20 grams of carbohydrate. If you're going to drink apple juice, it, mm. about a cup, that's about maybe 45 grams of carbohydrate. So you think about <laughs> um, the more um, 
the more concentrated it is or with added sugars, the carb count will go up. So if you focus on carbohydrates with fiber, you can get a lot in, yeah. you know, into the diet. Yeah. I yeah. agree. I, I mean, for me, fundamentally, uh, carbohydrates in the form of with fiber, like fruits, for example, they're always going to be preferred for me. I always want people to have it that way rather than yes. in a processed way. Correct. Add it on as sugar uh, because, you know, it, it breaks down more slowly as that fiber goes through your body. It helps. It's easier on your liver, your pancreas. Right. And it's it's a better way to do it. You know, I do get nervous with the carb-restrictive diets in general. I mean, they can they they can make people feel worse in the long run. And, and I don't always see great long-term results with them. But I, I haven't know- either. Yeah. But I know they're very popular and people use them and they're, you know, so it is the kind of thing that we're going to keep seeing. Um, but, you know, you're not going to take my rice away from me, Alan. It's not going to happen. <laughs> I'm going to eat my my bowl of rice. One bowl. Can we add that? Can we add a vegetable to that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. For Enjoy sure. the rice and the vegetables in the fridge as well. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's a great place to leave it. Uh, Neha, this has been so helpful. This is one of those episodes that I'm going to listen to myself a couple times just to catch everything again. So I really appreciate your time. Tell people where we can find you. Okay, so a couple of things. Um, I work at University of California, San Francisco. I specialize in gastrointestinal nutrition there. I own a private practice, Neha Nutrition LLC. And the reason I opened up the private practice is to bring specialized GI nutrition care into the community. And um, I do have a website, nehashanutrition.com. And anyone who's interested in working with me can schedule a complimentary call just to learn what the issues are. I want to see how I can help. And if it's a good fit, we'll move forward with sessions. So there's two ways that you can find me. <laughs> Fantastic. And a shout out to Dr. Uma Mahadevan. Who, oh, she's amazing. Who is an IBD expert, yes. world-renowned. 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 In IBD, who uh, recommended you for this in the first case. So thank you to her for that. Alan, what, 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 what are you doing? What are you doing? Alan, what can you plug if you want to plug anything? Do I want to plug anything? Um, I'm gonna plug fiber. Let's go ahead and say, uh, everyone go out there, grab some more fiber. I'm gonna eat some fruits and vegetables. And yeah, for me, I'm plugging fiber. Nothing personal on my my end, just fiber Fantastic. and Yay, good. He's awesome. in the pocket of big fiber, clearly. <laughs> um, thank you both so much, Neha. It was a real pleasure to meet you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. This has been great. <laughs> Bye. 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 This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.